Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. If you've been with us, you know that we have been walking through the book of Exodus for some time now, and we now come to chapter 24. This follows God giving His Word, His law to His people. They're there at Mount Sinai. God has rescued and delivered His people from their captivity in Egypt under the rule of a wicked king Pharaoh, and He's delivered them. He's brought them through the waters of the Red Sea. He's now taking them to the land of promise. And before He takes them to that land, He's preparing them by giving them His Word and His law. And so we've looked at the Ten Commandments. We've looked at the Book of the Covenant. We looked at how last Lord's Day, how God called His people to obedience and promised them blessings if they would obey. And now we come to Exodus 24, uh, where God confirms His covenant with His people. Now, he's going to invite Moses to enter into His holy presence in order to give him more of His Word. But before he does this, we'll see how this covenant is confirmed there through sacrifice, through the blood of that sacrifice. And as we look to these things prayerfully, uh, we will see a full picture of the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so I'm going to read for us Exodus 24 and out of reverence for God's Word. If you're able to, if you would stand as I read this holy Word for us today. And this is what the Scripture says. Then He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And He did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to Me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses with his assistant Joshua and Moses, Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. 
And on the seventh day, He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray, God, that that we might learn and grow from it, that You might transform our minds and hearts from unbelief to belief, from a lack of faith to faith, that our trust would be fully in Christ Jesus today as we consider Your Word. And so would You bless us through it now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine if you were to live in a day when you you didn't have the Scripture in your language. (coughs) Excuse me. Imagine you were to live in a day when in fact the, the only Scripture available was in a language you didn't understand. And not only did you not understand it, but you were never allowed to read it. Imagine you lived in a day when when you came to church, the Scripture was actually chained to the pulpit to emphasize this was not for you, it was only for the priest. And imagine if your only knowledge of the Scripture then came from a priest who shared from it in a language that you did not understand and then basically told you what you were to do. Imagine if they were to tell you if you wanted to be right with God that that you must take whatever money you had and purchase special pieces of paper that the church would issue. And they would offer you these indulgences and through the purchase of these indulgences you might achieve enough merit to enter into heaven. And not just for yourself, but imagine they were to say, well, if you purchase these, you can even purchase these on behalf of relatives who have died before you who are kind of stuck right now in a purgatory state. And and through the purchase of these, you might rescue them from damnation. You might usher them into heaven as well. Imagine if your hope rested on your works and your works alone. And every night as you went to bed, you had one question. Was I good enough today? Did I do enough today? And the next morning you would raise from your bed with that same question, will I be good enough today? Will I do enough good today? This was very much the culture and the context that existed some 500 years ago. This was the culture that led one man, Martin Luther, from his studies as a lawyer to enter into the monastery. He was taught that if he wanted to achieve righteousness, he would do it by his works and by his merit. And the best place to do that was to go into the monastic life and become a monk. It was the clergy who had the best opportunity then to earn merit before a holy God. And so as he did that, God did something unique in his life. I shared already this morning about how he was reading from Romans, and as he read from Romans and studied that book, God radically transformed his understanding of the Gospel. And there was a spark that was lit in his heart. And that spark caught on from Luther to others, and out of that came the Protestant Reformation. And as we now stand on the heritage of that Reformation some 500 years ago, there are certain doctrines that have come from that that are so crucial for us to understand today. 
Specifically, there are five. The five solas of the Reformation. Five uh, Latin terms that help us to understand what it is that we need to rescue. What it is we need to reform. What it is we need to stand on today in the life of the church to truly be uh, the Protestant, the, the protesters, the people of God who has called us to be. A people who stand on the truth of God's Word. These five phrases serve to help us understand God's work of justification. See, one of the things that haunted Luther was as he would study the Word, as he would seek to just find some rest, he kept coming back to terms that referred to us as righteous. And he didn't understand, how can man ever claim righteousness? How can we ever be good enough to be righteous? But he came to understand that the only way we could be righteous was through Christ. Through His righteousness. And He came to understand that through these five solas. First, through sola scriptura. Scripture alone. That the Bible alone is our highest authority. A sola fide. Faith alone. That we are saved through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sola gracia. Grace alone. That we are saved by the grace of God alone. And Solus Christus, Christ alone, that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. And solo Dio Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Luther came to understand, as others did behind him, that, that, that we exist not for our own glory, we exist for the glory of God. That these five truths, these five principles were not just established in the Reformation. These five truths, they were established in the Word of God. Well, we see them throughout God's Word, and I believe we see them here in Exodus chapter 24 as God is preparing His people to go into the land of promise. We see yet again, God is the covenant keeper. God is the one who keeps His people and guards His people and watches over His people. This is not by their works, it is by His work. And so as we look at this chapter, I want us to consider these five truths of the Reformation and how we see them in Exodus 24. And beginning with that first point there in your outline, that reminder that we are saved by grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. I hope that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is familiar to you. Now, we've discussed that passage many times. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. That, that passage helps us to see that we are only saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. And we need this reminder because so often we tend to live as if we're saved by something else. We tend to live as if God saves us, sure, in part because of grace, but many of us, we rest on our own works and our own accomplishments. And the way we see that, for example, is this. Perhaps you've had a bad week. Perhaps you've had a bad day. Perhaps things, just nothing went your way. Have you ever had a day like that? My family knows I had one this week. Before 7 a.m., the dishwasher was leaking, and the dog was also leaking. The kitchen was a mess because of those things. I couldn't find the key to my truck, and it didn't have any gas in it. And I was wandering around the house, praising God, singing hymns, of course. 
Not so much. Uh, you know, the, the things like that tend to happen, and when they do, it's one after another after another after another. And, and what we are tempted to do at that time is to ask the question, well, well maybe I deserve this. Maybe I, I didn't read my Bible enough yesterday. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe God's getting my attention because maybe He's punishing me because as of what I said or what I thought or what I didn't do or what I did do. And we begin to think that God's favor towards us or lack of favor or the mess in the kitchen, that those things are there because we did something to deserve them. Or when things go really well and really work out, and that day we happen to read our Bible or pray or, or really do something kind, we think that God is somehow rewarding us. And this is a slippery slope. Because what we're doing in those moments is we are basing our blessing and our life on our works and not the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, that's exactly what we then begin to base our salvation on. Perhaps you've heard someone say, perhaps you've even said yourself, well, God just can't forgive me for this. No, no, God can forgive. And it's not based on what you did or didn't do. It's based on what Christ did. See, see, our trust, our, our faith, our hope, it's built on Jesus Christ. It's built on the grace of God. And we certainly see that grace in this passage, don't we? Because notice what happens as we are introduced in Exodus 24 to this scene. God is inviting Moses up the mountain. He is saying to Moses, I want you to come into my presence. Now, is this because Moses was so holy? No, no, Moses, Moses was a sinner. Moses was a murderer. Now, I've shared with you before, uh, many times when I'm sharing the Gospel with people, I'll, I'll ask them a couple of questions. And one of them is, if you could stand, if you stood before God today and He asked, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And, and commonly, more often than not, People begin to talk about their works. And the one thing they always mention, well, I've never killed anybody. <laughs> I'm not that bad. Moses couldn't say that. And Moses couldn't say, well, at least I've never killed anybody. He had killed. And he fled. And he ran. And yet here, a holy God is welcoming a sinful murderer into His presence. How can that happen? After all, we read in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Well, what do we see there in the garden? Adam and Eve sin against God, and what does God do? He removes them from His presence. He removes them from His garden. So how is it that Moses the murderer can now ascend the mountain of God? Is it because he was doing a better job? <laughs> is it because he meditated on God's Word that morning? No, it's because God showed him grace. Unmerited favor. Friends, you realize that the only reason, hear me, the only reason you are sitting here today is because of the grace of God. Because were it not for the grace of God, we don't deserve another breath, we don't deserve another moment. 
We deserve to be separated from Him. We don't deserve to gather with His people and sing of His riches and His goodness and His glory. We don't deserve any of these things. We haven't earned any of these things. But it's by His grace, His grace and His grace alone that He brings us into this relationship with Him through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. See, the writer of Hebrews, in calling the people's attention back to this mountain, he writes about how, how, how we now can ascend the holy mountain. Uh, then, when we read here in Exodus 24, it's just Moses. God's real clear. You, you can bring the 70 part of the way. You can bring Aaron part of the way. You can even bring Joshua part of the way. But Moses, you're the only one who can come all the way. Because Moses is the mediator. By God's grace, He makes Moses the mediator. That the one who comes before Him on behalf of the people, the one who goes to the people on behalf of Him, by His grace, He's placed Him in this role. But, but it's a foreshadowing. It's, it's pointing towards something that's going to come. It's pointing towards our great mediator. And that's what the writer of Hebrews points out. He, he says, now we can all ascend God's holy mountain because we have a greater mediator, Christ Jesus our Lord. And now we can ascend the mountain. Hebrews 4.16, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's still by God's grace that we can do this. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so we see very clearly this Reformation truth echoes through and echoes from Exodus 24. We are saved by grace alone, point two, then we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. The soul of fide, through, by faith alone. So, so how do we see faith here? Well, notice what happens. God tells Moses that he's to come near the mountain, but before Moses comes, verse 3, he, he goes and, and he tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And so we see faith in a couple of ways here. Now, we certainly see Moses exercising faith and, and trusting in God. Okay, God, I'm going to go before the people now and I'm going to tell them all these things you've said. And, and, and I have faith that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. If we obey, you're going to bless us. You're going to lead us. You're going to guard us. You're going to send your angel before us. I'm going to go before the people. I'm going to share your word. I'm trusting you, God. But not just that. Notice the faith we see from the people and how they respond. Verse 3 there. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, now some of us, when we, when we read that, we, we tend to think that might be just kind of a, a, a rash decision on the people's part. Because we've read ahead, we know what happens next. I mean, they're not going to get away from that mountain before they forsake God and disobey God and turn on just about everything God told them to do. So, so how could they so quickly say, all that the Lord has said we will do? You, you might think of it this way, perhaps. Imagine a, a parent at dinner there with a child. And, and the parent says to the child, uh, well, we, we've, we've, we've got some dessert tonight. child says, alright, that sounds good to me. parent says, now listen, before you can have dessert, you need to make a promise. After you get done with your dessert, you're going to go upstairs. You're going to clean that nasty room. And not just that, you're, you're going to go ahead and get in the bathtub. You're going to get your bath. And you're going to get all your homework done. And you're going to get to bed. And you're not going to get up 15 times tonight. You're going to go to bed the first time and stay in the bed and go to bed. Now what would that child say? Well, I really need to think about this. 
No, what's that child probably going to say? Sure, sounds good. Bring on dessert. I'm good with all that. And the whole time the parent knows what? They're not going to do what they said. They just want the dessert. They're going to say what they need to say to get what they want. And chances are they're probably not going to do all those things they said they would do. Now we tend to read this passage as if that's what God's people are doing. That they're making some type of rash response here. Oh sure God, we'll do whatever you tell us to do God. But I think there's probably more to it than that. I think more so what's happening here is, is kind of what we see happen in a marriage ceremony. And a marriage ceremony, there's a part in the ceremony where the, the pastor will lead the bride and the groom through a statement of intent. Through making vows. And that bride and that groom will make a vow before one another, before that minister, before those witnesses, and ultimately before God. And they'll vow to honor one another. And they'll vow to care for one another. And they'll vow to provide and to stick together through through riches and through poverty and through sickness and through health. Now, I understand that, that every couple who does that doesn't necessarily live up to those vows. But, but I've never been a part of a wedding ceremony where the bride or the groom in making their vows said to the other, uh, I promise to be with you in riches and in poverty, not a chance of that. And, and in health and in sickness, I'm leaving if you get sick. I've never seen that. Have you? I'd take the gift back if you've been at one of those. No, that doesn't happen. Why? Because they're making a vow of intent. They're saying, this is our full intention. This is what we're going to do. They might not live up to it, but they're focused right there. This is what we intend to do. And I think here with God's people, you've got an intention that they've heard the Word of the Lord. They've been rescued from slavery. They've been brought through the water. They're on the way to the land of promise. They've seen God do miraculous things. He says, do these things. Obey me and I'll bless you. And I think what they're doing here is saying very much, we will do this. Here's the thing about the Old Covenant. They can't. <laughs> that They can vow all day long. But the Scripture says in the Old Covenant they still have hearts of stone that need to be removed. And they need to have a heart of flesh. We're reminded of that passage that Pastor Matt read during the offering that, that, that one day a new covenant would come and God would write His law on the heart of man through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we see here, I think, is reminiscent even of what we see in our world today of people who are religious but lost. Of even people, perhaps some of you this morning, who, who claim to be Christians but don't actually know Christ. Of people who vow all day long, well, I'll never do that and I won't do that and I will do that. Not in some rash way. That's their desire. I want to stop sinning. I want to stop hurting people. I want to start doing the right thing. And yet they find themselves in the same spot over and over and over again. Why? Because nothing's changed in their hearts. And God's people are reminded here they need a heart change. But as best they can, I think, in this moment, they're saying, we're, we're, we're going to respond in faith. We're going to trust God in faith. And of course, that, that pushes us forward to see when that day is possible and how we can do that through our faith in our Lord Jesus. It's through faith in Christ that we can then obey God's Word. Now that doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect when we're Christians, but what it does mean is we are now trusting in the One who is perfect. And His finished work on the cross. So we don't need to go to bed at night thinking, Lord, did I do enough today? 
Now we can go to bed at night thinking, Lord, how did I respond to Your grace today? Do I need to do something different tomorrow in response to Your grace? But we need not lay down at night wondering, am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? I did that. I thought I was saved. I did that. Now I think I'm not saved. No, our salvation rests in Christ Jesus. And we're saved by Christ. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Point three, we're saved in Christ alone. Solus Christus. And you may be thinking, well, okay, we're... Where do we see Jesus in Exodus 24? Well, of course we see Jesus throughout Exodus, don't we? I mean, Moses doesn't say explicitly the fullness of the Gospel here because that's going to unfold and come. But we see such a picture here that points us towards Christ and towards the Gospel. And we see it in this sacrifice that's offered. And notice there in verses 4 and 5, Moses offers burnt offerings and peace offerings. You'll remember that just after the Ten Commandments, God gave Moses instruction about altars and about offerings. And I think what Moses is doing here is he's following those instructions because he knows in order to worship God, first there had to be a sacrifice. In order to come into God's presence, there had to be atonement for sin. And that's what's happening here. And so there's this sacrifice that's made and there's all this blood. Now, we have to be careful here because that can seem a bit grotesque to us and we can just kind of skip over this, but this is very significant. Because when this sacrifice is made, the Scripture tells us that Moses, he separates the blood there and he takes half the blood and he throws that blood on the altar and then he takes the other half of the blood and he goes before the people, he reads the Word, they say again, we're going to do what God said, we're going to obey God, and what does he do? He seals that with this blood. He throws this blood on them as well. Well, what's happening here? Well, well, this is the mark of the covenant God's making with His people. It's twofold. One, people can only approach God if sin is atoned for. And that blood on the altar represents that God is accepting that sacrifice. Now, it wasn't a perfect sacrifice, but it pointed towards one that was. And so on one half, we have God accepting the sacrifice that's been made. There's blood on the altar. And then at the same time, sinful people cannot approach a holy God. Unless what? Unless He shows His grace. And how does He do that here? He he is putting that blood on them. He is marking them as holy and as set apart. But we know that this wasn't sufficient. In fact, we know that throughout the Scripture there would be many, many, many more sacrifices. And yet we read this in Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... So what he's basically saying is, listen, that doesn't work that way. They don't do that. But if they did, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of the new covenants. The last Lord's Day, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And what do we talk about when we take that cup? We're reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 26. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so God establishes this sacrificial system for His people so that they might come to understand that it's not by their works and their effort and their blood that they might be saved, but there needs to be blood for sin. 
There needs to be a sacrifice. And it was pointing towards the one that would be the perfect sacrifice towards the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's only through that blood that we might be saved. It's only through Christ and Christ alone that we might be saved. And so this great truth of the Reformation that came from Luther and from others, we see it in this text. That it's only by God's grace that Moses can approach this presence of God. And it's only through faith that the people can respond to the Word of God. And it's only through this sacrifice, ultimately through the blood of Christ, that people can be made right before God. But not just that, point four there. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone. A sola scriptura. And we see throughout this passage that the Word of God is central. In verse 3, Moses tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Verse 4, he writes down all the words of the Lord. And then verse 7, he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of all the people. And so you see the centrality of the Word here. He goes and tells them what God said. He wrote down what God said, which then becomes the beginning of the of the. Scripture that we have now, the canon of Scripture. And not only that, then he opens it up and he reads it before them. This is central. And now God is telling Moses, I want you to come up to me so that I can give you more of the Word. The Word is central here. Now this is where things can get a bit confusing for us because we read something in this text that may trouble some of us. The Exodus 33.20 says, Man shall not see God and live. God says that. Man shall not see Me and live. And yet, what do we see in this text? Verse 10, and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. So how could they see God? And notice what He says after this. They lived. He did not lay His hand on them that they beheld God and they ate and drank. And so God's even pointing out that they have seen me and yet I did not kill them. How does that work? Well, we don't know fully. (laughs) We know that they're not fully in the presence of God here because Moses is going to go farther up the mountain into the cloud and so they're still at a distance from God. But it would seem that here what they're they're seeing is not the fullness of what God warns against in Exodus 30.20 because He says if you see me you'll die. But it would seem that they're, they're, they're catching a glimpse of God's glory. But perhaps a partial vision here. And I think the Scripture even hints at that because notice, the only thing they say about what they see was under His feet. <laughs> so there's this sense where they, they can't look up and behold the full glory of God that they can barely just look up enough to see what's, what's underneath His feet. And, and as they do that, they're reminded, Moses is reminded that, that he's the only one that could come up into the presence of God, that he'll come and receive the, the Word of God. God's Word is central in Exodus 24. God's Word was central in the Reformation. As I mentioned already, common man didn't have the Word of God to read. And so one of the fruits of the Reformation was that Martin Luther translated the Greek New Testament into German. And there's this, this beautiful scene, if you've ever seen the, the movie, I think it was in 2003 about Martin Luther and the Reformation there, there's this scene where, where Luther, he, he had a benefactor. 
of Frederick III, Frederick the Wise. And Frederick was a great defender of Luther and his teachings. And there's this scene, this wonderful scene in the movie where uh, Luther has translated the New Testament into German. Now this is the only German translation that exists at this point of the New Testament. The only New Testament in the common man's language. And as he presents it to Frederick, this scene in the movie where he just is overwhelmed. And he's so delicate with it. And he's so shocked by it. Is this, is this mine? And he just then begins to, to look over it. Friends, we, we live in a day now where we are so blessed. I don't think any of you had to go on a hunt this week to try to locate an English translation of the Bible. I don't think that any of us went to our our house throughout our house. Well, here's a here's a Latin one. I just can't find the English anywhere. No. What do we have? We 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 have a plethora of translations. I have a cardboard box in a room over here full of English Bibles. We give them away. But the sad truth of the church today is it might as well be in Latin or German. Or some language many of us don't know. Because we spend so little time reading it. Do you realize the wealth and the treasure that God has given to us? That people existed for centuries without. That they cried out for. Do you realize people died so that we might have an English translation of the Scripture? Don't neglect it. Don't pass it by. It is the only means through which we might gain a full understanding of God and His Gospel. We desperately need this. We live in a culture today when people cling and run towards opportunities to have some type of spiritual experience. Well, well, this thing happened today and I just knew God was speaking to me. You know, I'd, I'd been praying about taking this job and and I just asked God to send me a sign and, and the phone rang and it was that company calling me and I, I looked at the clock and, and the clock said 2.13 and then I looked on the letterhead from the company and their address was 2.13 Main Street. It must be a sign from God. What if your clock's wrong? What if you have a power outage? What if you, you just didn't look at the clock until you were off the phone and now it says 2.17? Well, that's still 2.13. Well, it must not be God's will now. You see what a flippant people we are? We're so often looking for signs from God. And what has God sent us? Friends, He has sent us more than a phone call at 2.13. He sent us His Son who went to the cross for our sins, He's done more than said, look to the skies and try to figure something out. No, He's given us His holy Word that we might learn from it and be transformed by it. And one of the great, great fruits of the Reformation is this was recovered for us. That you and I might stand here today, might read from it, might understand it, might rejoice in it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone. And then, point five there, for the glory of God alone. 
for the glory of God alone. Moses goes up this mountain and that there's so little detail here. <laughs> we just know that Moses, he, he goes up the mountain in verse 16, that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. He, he enters into the presence of a holy God and into His glory. I'm always curious by accounts people offer and books they sell about how they, you know, how many heaven, how many minutes they were dead, and what they saw and near-death experiences. And I'm always curious about them because they always seem to center on the individual. Do you notice that? Here's what I felt. It was just this warm feeling. I just saw this bright light and there was so much warmth and goodness and joy and I've never, I've never felt anything like it. And, and now I'm going to write a book about it. Now you can buy that book and now I'll go on a speaking tour. And it's, it's about, look at what I saw. Look at what I beheld. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And what did that cloud look like according to the Scripture? A consuming fire. That's from a distance what people saw. That they can't even approach it because of the intensity of it. A consuming fire. That's the picture we have of the glory of God here. I mean, have you ever been close to just a little fire? And it's burning and it's been burning for a while and it's hot and you can't get but, but so close to it because even if you get close to it without touching the flames, it'll begin to burn you. Because of the intensity of, of a small fire here. God's Word tells us that the people look up there, verse 17, and the appearance of the glory of God was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of God. So, so God here isn't a supernatural care bearer. Okay? God here is a wildfire that, that's wiping out thousands of acres right now in the western part of the U.S. That's the picture we have of God. That this intensity, this, this burning, this, this devouring fire, this is the glory of God. That word in the Hebrew means the riches of God, the heaviness of God, the reputation of God, the importance of God, the splendor of God, the, the majesty of God. And Moses enters into this glory. It's interesting as you follow this text that later as Moses comes down off the mountain, his, his face is shining because he's been in the presence of God. Now again, uh, people in our culture, in our day, who have these, what they account as these experiences, they, they talk about, they probably write a book about how much their face was shining. <laughs> Exodus 34 just tells us this, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So, so the focus here is not on Moses. It's not on the people. The focus here is on God and on the glory of God. And one of the great truths that came from the Reformation was this German monk calling into account the religious leaders of his day who were living for their glory. I've had the chance to travel all over the world. I've had the chance to go to places where 
I stood in cathedrals that were built before the Reformation, some after it, and I stood in these enormous monuments that pointed towards men. And then here we see the Reformation. The Reformation exists for the glory of God. It recovers the glory of God. It helps people to see that we're to live for the glory of God. And so Luther in his day was sure to tell the people, you don't have to live the monastic life or become a, a monk in order to achieve righteousness. We achieve righteousness through faith in Christ. And what was recovered there was this great understanding of vocation and work. And so Luther would say things like, that the dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God. You can do whatever you do today for the glory of God. Because friend, you and I are here. We exist. Not for ourselves. We exist for God and His glory. And so that's what we're left with from this passage. And that's what I want you to consider as we come to this 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Are you living for the glory of God? When you have interactions with your neighbors, with your family, with your, your co-workers, do you go into those things seeking to bring God glory in all you say and do? Or are you living for your own glory, your own desires, your own prestige? The Scripture calls us to this reminder. Moses calls this, us to this reminder that when he entered the cloud and went up the mountain, he was there in the presence of a holy God. And friends, that, that is a picture that we're reminded of at the very end of the Bible in Revelation that there will be a day that for those in Christ, we too go up the mountain and we too are in the presence of a holy God. But rather than gathering today like we do today and singing songs about Him, we're singing to Him. And He's there. And we're in His presence. And we're praising Him for His goodness and His grace that we've come to understand through Christ alone, through faith alone, through His grace alone, through His Scripture alone, we, we can stand there in the presence one day of His glory. But friends, we will not stand in that day if we will not bow our knee in this day. If we will not this day say and confess that He indeed is Lord. If we will not say, as the people said, all that you have said we will do. The difference between then and now as we now live in the new covenant. Now, empowered by the Spirit, we can obey God and we can live according to His Word. And so as we sing and as we pray and as we close our time together, consider that question. Are you living for the glory of God? Are you living for your own glory? Are you trusting in Christ alone? By grace alone? Through faith alone? The foundation of His Word alone? Are you living for His glory alone? If you would, stand together and pray with me. Father, I thank You that You have used men and women throughout the history of the church to remind us of some important truths to recalibrate us, to bring our focus back where it needs to be. And Lord, perhaps for some of us this morning, we need that reminder 
Perhaps some of us have gotten distracted. We've, we've been trusting in our works. We've been trusting in our efforts. We, we've been consumed by the things of the world. We, we've been living for our glory, our desires. Father, would You work in our hearts now through the power of Your Spirit and call us to faith and repentance, to trust in Christ. Lord, perhaps there's some here this morning who have spent decades of their life building up an altar to their own glory. Building up an argument. Building up achievements. Building up to this moment where they think they'll stand before you and say, well, look at all the good I did. Lord, would you help them to see that the only good that's ever been done was that that Christ did on the cross. It was that that was lived by Christ. And the only good we can do is empowered by Christ, not ourselves. That none of us will stand before you in our own efforts and achieve righteousness. That it's only through Christ we're saved. So Father, I pray as we sing, as we pray, as we respond, that we would place our full hope and trust in Christ. And we ask this in His name. Amen.